Welcome to this week's message from Rabbi Kevin Solomon, Senior Rabbi of Congregation Beth Hillel in Roswell, Georgia. Beth Hillel is one of the largest Messianic Jewish synagogues in the world and provides a place where Jewish people can find the Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus in Hebrew, and retain their Jewishness. It's also where Gentiles worship and embrace the roots of the faith in drawing closer to God. Click the link in the description to support this ministry or to view our YouTube channel. Let's join Rabbi Kevin now as he shares this word from Scripture. Uh, my very, very good friend, uh, Pastor Matt Johnston. Pastor Matt is, is somebody who's beloved here at Bethlehem. He's spoken at Messianic conferences. He's spoken to our youth group. He did a youth retreat for us. He's, he's, uh, he's kind of been all over uh, within the Messianic world, if you will. Uh, and, uh, and he, years ago, many years ago, I always like to tell the, just a little bit of the story. He may uh, mention it. But years and years ago, uh, he would come here because as a pastor, his, his services were Sunday, of course, and so he was off Friday nights. And so he came Friday nights just to get filled up, and, and he didn't like, he was like, I don't know anybody, I don't really, I just want to receive. And so he was happy to be kind of anonymous, and, uh, and it was a blessing always to see him, and I got to know him, and uh, wow, I admire him. He's such a, he's, he's, uh, he's, he's really smart, as you'll see. He's like a linguistic guy. He's, he's uh, a scholar and, and somebody who I look up to, really. And, uh, and like I said, he's a very good friend. Come on up, Pastor Matt Johnston, everybody. Yes! Woo! Get ready. He's full of energy. Here it comes. <laughs> I'm going to get into the sermon, but I just want to say, uh, or give a quick shout out, as we like to say, or uh, give flowers, as we like to say, uh, just to you as a congregation. I like to emphasize that every time I teach here, Beth Halal has been a blessing to my life. And Rabbi Kevin has been a blessing to my walk with Yeshua. And so I want to first and foremost say thank you and keep doing the good work. Now, today, <laughs> we're going to be, uh, we're going to be in this intense passage. If you want to uh, get your scriptures out, we're going to be in 1 Samuel 31. And actually at North Metro Church, we've been in a series in 1 Samuel 31, or in 1 Samuel. That would be a <laughs> weird series to just be in just 31 for a whole series. But we've actually been in the whole entire scroll of Samuel. And there's a lot of action in this passage. So I'm going to narrate a bit of it tonight. And I'm going to kind of pluck out one verse we're going to land on in a moment. And then I'm just going to kind of narrate the rest. And so... Let me take you into the text. Let me take you into the word. So 1 Samuel 31 picks up and it's this action-packed passage. It's one of those movies where like from the opening scene, it's action. And so the scene opens up and King Saul, King Shaul is fighting against, guess who? The Philistines as he has his entire reign, his entire rule. Here's the problem though. He's fighting them 
in this place called the Valley of Jezreel, which since I was in Israel, now I know where that is and I've seen it with my own two eyes. And if you know about the Valley of Jezreel, especially in these times, it was a strategic location. If you wanted to try to invade Israel or take the land, you would probably try to go for the Valley of Jezreel so you could cut the land in half, cut the north off from the south, and that could block trade routes and moving armies. And so that's what the Philistines wanted to do. They wanted to take the Valley of Jezreel. What's more, taking the Valley of Jezreel, this <clears throat> flat terrain, served to their tactical and technological advantage. You see, the Philistines had superior technology. They had iron. And at this point in history, the Israelites are working with predominantly bronze. Okay, so that's like um, having like a smartphone and like a flip phone from like the 80s or 90s. Okay, some of you may still be rocking with that. And hey, good on you. Okay, do what you do. Do what you do. <laughs> so they had this technological advantage. And so they had iron and they had iron chariots. So they wanted flatland so they could go in and use their technological and tactical advantage to defeat <clears throat> King Shaul, which is exactly what they do. They come through and are sweeping through King Shaul's troops. And at this point, King Saul, King Shaul, has actually the anointing and appointing of, of him as king has been removed to him, if you recall, has been placed on David, has been placed on David. And so... Shaul, for this whole last portion of 1 Samuel, has been fighting and operating without the Lord's blessing, without the Lord's anointing. And he's surveying this battlefield and he's seeing, it's almost like in slow motion, he's seeing his men fall to the sword, fall to the chariot. He sees this iron weaponry just glistening in the sun. And then he looks across the battlefield desperately and he sees all three of his sons fall to the sword. And so Shaul, realizing this tactical and technological advantage, he flees the scene, which strategically was smart because the chariots can't chase him up the mountain because he goes out, up this mountain called Mount Gilboa. And it, what's so great about going to the land, what's so great about going to Israel, and I'm sure you say this all the time, is I was able to teach this passage to my congregation and I can tell people who are kind of like, eh, I don't know about the Bible. Eh, it kind of seems like fairy tale world. Uh, I have stood on Mount Gilboa. It's a real place. It exists. And Saul was a real figure in actual history. So it's cool to point that out. And so Saul's running, King Shaul's running up this mountain and the archers come after him and they're just letting loose the arrows. And King Shaul becomes wounded, fatally wounded. And he gets to the top of this mountain and he's wounded and he's clinging on to life. And he, he looks down the mountain. He knows what's coming for him. Yes, the Philistines, but what's more, certain death and destruction. And in this moment, King Shaul has to countenance the situation and he realizes he has limited options. What he doesn't want to happen is he doesn't want to be captured because he could be tortured or used as a political puppet by the Philistines who are constantly warring with the Israelites. And in his culture at this time, it was actually considerable in his position, more honorable to take his own life than allow his enemy to do so. And so King Shoal turns 
his sword on himself and he falls on his own sword and he ends his life. That's a super heavy way to start a sermon, is it not? That is heavy. Woo, that is heavy. But let me ask this question. If you read through 1 Samuel, or just Samuel, it's actually one scroll in the original Hebrew, you have to ask the question, how did King Shaul get here? How did this happen? And what I want to talk to you guys about on this Shabbat Erev is the slippery slope of Saul, the slippery slope of Shaul. And to do this, let's start by talking about the reign of Shaul, the reign of Saul. You see, in this time, Israel had entered the land and they were ruled by judges. However, they, in kind of a flashback fashion, they are, uh, they're not satisfied with just having judges. They want a king <clears throat> like all the other nations. At this point, the Lord was king over Israel. And it was called a theocracy. And so the Lord reigned and ruled over Israel, but Israel's like, no, 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 well, see, the thing is we want a king like all the other nations. Rather than be a nation that's set apart to be a blessing to all nations, oh, we actually kind of want to be just like all the other nations. And so they start chanting, we want a king, we want a king, we want a king. And here's the deal. Samuel appoints this guy named Shaul, and actually his name means asked for. In Hebrew, it means asked for or inquired about of God. So it's kind of like his name was asked for. And what happens is, as Saul is raised up, the people decide they want a king. This is how Shaul is described. He's described as tall and tov. Tov is a Hebrew word for good, and in this context, it meant good looking. And so they're like, whoa, Saul's tall. He's good looking. We like that guy. And so they wanted a king like the other nations who was a statesman and a warrior. Saul was tall. And someone who could be like a good face for the military and their governments. And so they, honestly, they wanted Shaul to be king simply because he was tall and tov. And in doing this and kind of and moving ahead of the Lord and demanding, we want a king, we want a king. What happens is the Israelites at this time, they choose immediacy and expediency over patience and obedience. Immediacy and expediency over patience and obedience. And instead of, of recognizing the Lord as king, they're kind of like, oh, we want a king like the other nations. And instead of waiting on the Lord's timing for a king, they go, no, 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 we want a king now. And they move ahead of the Lord in this. Now we know that ultimately, the true king, the true hero of the narrative will come much later on in Hamashiach Yeshua, the true king, the true Messiah. But at this point, Israel's still waiting. And so Saul becomes king. And I can tell you, King Shaul, it takes over. And this is where literally from day one, the slippery slope starts. So let's talk about the slippery slope of King Shaul. Oh my gosh. At his coronation, not even his first day on the job. We see this silliness, okay? So let's start with this. Uh, King uh, Shaul was just, he was, he was kind of silly. He's portrayed in the text as, as kind of like a bumbling goofball, okay? He's kind of like that friend you have where you're just like, oh, Chet. Or I don't know, I just picked a name. I'm sorry if your name is Chet. He's like, oh, not Chet. 
He's a lovable goofball. He is. <laughs> and so that's kind of how Shoah was depicted. He's kind of like, what, 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 what? I can't open the door. Push it. Huh? No, no, don't pull it. Whatever. Like he's just all over the place. And at his coronation, as king, he hides. Now keep in mind, Saul is, King Shoah was described as head and shoulders taller than any man in the land. And he tries to hide at his coronation behind the baggage. My man is taller than everybody else. And so he's not good at hiding. And everyone's like, uh, we can see you. He's like, no, you can't. And it's kind of this comical scene that's going to set the stage for what, quite frankly, I would argue is this comedic arc of, of Shaul in his early rule. So he kind of goes from just being silly and then he kind of slides into, early on in his reign, foolish. So he kind of had this like silliness and then he slides into foolishness. And in this other skirmish with the Philistines, King Shaul in desperation, uh, I need to make a sacrifice, I need to make a sacrifice. As a king, I'm not supposed to make a sacrifice because the law says I'm not supposed to make a sacrifice. I'm going to make a sacrifice. It'll be fine, it'll be fine. And he foolishly makes a sacrifice to the Lord when he was not supposed to because he was not the priest or even the prophet Samuel. And because of this, this foolish move, it wasn't malicious, it wasn't malintended, it was just ill-contemplated and foolish. And because of this, the Lord says that he's going to remove the kingship from Shaul. So we see this slide to just kind of, <laughs> Shaul, to foolishness to, to or silliness to, foolishness. But then, 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 then you keep reading and you see that then Shaul becomes given to pride and envy. And pride and envy are, are emotions that we all experience at some point. But actually after David fells and, and kills Goliath, Shaul's riding into town. King Shaul's riding into town and he thinks now that he's defeated, that Goliath's defeated and the Philistines are kind of temporarily defeated, he thinks this is a victory lap for him. So he rides into town like, yeah, like give it up. Let's hear it for Shaul. And all of the people are chanting for, exactly. They're chanting for David. And so, so Shaul just goes like, hey, I don't really like that. And he gets jealous and prideful and envious. And so that's kind of innocent. If it were to stop there and he could take account of that, it would be understandable. But you see this, this pride and envy, start the, the seed get planted as the people are cheering for David instead of Shaul. Then there's a subtle move to problematic pride and envy. And out of his pride and envy, Shaul begins to act and actively work against the Lord's anointed and appointed King David. And so King Shaul launches scheme after scheme after scheme after scheme trying to get David or trying to shame David or trying to uh, just cause problems for him. And scheme after scheme after scheme fails because the Lord's anointing, appointing, and protection is on King David. And so there's this whole, please forgive me for this analogy, but it just makes sense in my brain. There's this whole like Wiley E. Coyote roadrunner dynamic going on where like Saul is trying all this stuff, Shaul is trying all this stuff and like none of it works and David just keeps like beep beep out of it and like head on. Like that's, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Sorry, but that just makes, it makes sense in my brain to explain it that way. So, and so this pride and envy that just started with a feeling, just kind of like a, 
Why is everyone cheering for David? Like, what about me? It turns into these schemes he's hatching against David, ill-intended and malicious. But then it turns violent. And King Shaul gives in to his pride and envy even more, and he becomes violent. He actually spends the whole middle section of 1 Samuel, again, uh, Samuel is actually one scroll, but in, in the Bibles we hold. In this first section of 1 Samuel, the middle section, he's just chasing David around, trying to kill him. We're at the point of killing now out of pride and envy. And the Lord protects his anointed and appointed, and Shaul is not able to, fall, to kill him. But then Shaul slides even further. And in 1 Samuel 17, we read about this place called Nob or Nav, and uh, King Shaul goes there, and there's a bunch of priests there. And out of his pride and envy that has now started to billow and kind of slippery slope, he suspects that they're loyal to David. And so rather than inquire about this or maybe ask them for their loyalty, he goes, mm, hey, priest, I, no, 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 don't even deny it. Don't even deny it. I know you're loyal to David, and I, I'm not going to have that. And he kills them all of the priests in this town, and then puts the sword to the majority of the rest of the city. King Shaul now has become a monster. And then in 1 Samuel 31, we find at the end of his life, at the end of his road, King Shaul looks back and the Philistines are happening upon him. David is somewhere else fighting, victor, fighting battles and having victories and he's getting ready to become king and Shaul falls on his own sword. And that is how he got here. And here's what I would submit to you. Here's what I would suggest to you. King Shaul made a series and sequence of disobedient decisions that land consistently disobedient decisions that landed him where the Philistines ended him. King Shaul made a series and sequence of consistently disobedient decisions that landed him where the Philistines ended him. This is no plot twist. In fact, this is the sum of all of King Shaul's actions. This is exactly where the road King Shaul tread led. By analogy, has anyone in the congregation ever hiked the AT, the Appalachian Trail? Show of hands. Really? Wow, that's super impressive. Okay, that's a long trail, if you're not aware. The Appalachian Trail, if you guys don't know, which by the way, hold on one sec, one sec, one sec. Uh, for full disclosure, okay, for full disclosure, this is a weird analogy for me because I, whatever an outdoorsman is, I'm the opposite of that. I'm a great indoorsman, okay? And I thank the Lord for his good gifts of uh, air conditioning and indoor plumbing. So I'm not much of an outdoorsman, so this analogy is kind of weird. I feel like I'm kind of fronting with this, but the AT, the Appalachian Trail, runs from North Georgia, North Georgia, and it ends in Maine. That is where it goes. It goes nowhere else. And so if you are on the AT, as you were, as you know, if you continue forward, and you do not turn to the left or the right, you do not fall, turn back, you will irrevocably and irreversibly and inevitably land in Maine. So when you're in Maine, you're not surprised that you're not in Montana. And you're not disappointed that you're not in Mexico. 
because you're in Maine, because that is where the AT leads. And likewise, we should not be surprised when we see King Shaul here at the end of this road, because this is exactly where this road was leading, this pernicious, perdicious path to death and destruction. This is a slippery slope of King Shaul, and this is a slippery slope of sin. These consistently disobedient decisions. And so let's talk about this slippery slope of sin. And to, and to do this, let me set up kind of the notion of sin in the Bible. I feel like sin is a word we throw around a lot, and then maybe people are clear on it. Maybe some people are not as much. So in the beginning, the Lord created all things out of creativity and love and calls creation tov, which again is the word for good. And the Lord actually placed humanity in the garden to bring about more tov, more goodness, more flourishing for creation. But the problem is that instead, humanity, pay attention to this verbiage, turns away from the Lord in rebellion and a desire to be like the Lord and inevitably to do what is right in their own eyes. Like we got it. And in this, we see Ra enter into the world. Evil, Hebrew word for evil, enter into the world. And we see that Ra actually is kind of anti-tope, anti-good creation. And we see that Ra actually actively works against the Lord's good plans, purposes, and promises for his good creation. Ra in the Bible pushes against this. It's active opposition to it. What's more, evil actually oppresses and afflicts the tov creation, the good creation. And so throughout the Bible, there's this tension of, of tov, the tovness, the goodness of the Lord, and the ra, the evil of humanity, and the evil one, the attempter, the accuser. And this is the conflict throughout all scripture. And in the early chapters of Genesis, in Genesis 4, we actually read that there's this outward exercising of evil called sin. Hebrew, the Hebrew word chatah. And so sin is just this outward action, this outward exercising of ra, of evil. And we see that it's a problem. And we see throughout scripture, let me just give you a couple characteristics here. Uh, throughout scripture, sin, again, which is, which is this outward exercising of evil, uh, we see that sin is described as like a, a uh, prowling predator. You know, it's just, it's waiting to consume. It's like a consuming creature, almost like a lion. Uh, various places you can read it and, and that's exactly what you get. And so there's almost this like word picture of like a, like a lion in the high grass, you know? Like if you ever watch Animal Planet where it's like, the lion spots his prey. The baby, the, the gazelle treads upon with his weak leg. You know what I'm saying? It's like this whole, like the lion's waiting to pounce. That's kind of this description of sin throughout and people are consumed by it. Sin is also described as this force, this force that gets ahead of steam and gets momentum. You see this in the early chapters of Genesis and gets carried away and out of hand. And it's almost this like snowball effect that pulls in people and empires and creation and it all, it just gains momentum and becomes this evil destructive thing that ends in death and destruction. 
And we also see that sin is often described in the scriptures as a path. And it is a path that has an irrevocable, irreversible, inevitable ending, death and destruction. We read in the New Testament that, uh, actually Rabbi Shaul in the New Testament, Paul, aka Paul in the New Testament, he actually says the wages of sin are death. And so this is the consistent biblical pattern. And this is, this is how sin is described. And sin is, um, it's insidious, it's sneaky, it's a slippery slope. And so to talk about kind of the slippery slope of sin, again, it can get momentum and get out of hand. To talk about this slippery slope of sin, uh, I want to tell you what I call a pastoral proverb. These are proverbs and stories and anecdotes that get passed from like one pastor to the next pastor to the next pastor. No one knows where it came from. Some people aren't even sure it's true. And it kind of gets passed down. And this, this proverb is actually, it's about making slow changes in an organization or a church. However, this, this kind of pastoral proverb reminded me of the slippery slope of sin and how insidious and sneaky it is and how sin can get out of hand real quick, like real quick. So there's this story about this pastor. Uh, let's just call him, we'll stick with Chet, okay? Rough day if your name is Chet. So, so Chet has this church and it's a traditional church. It's a denominational church and... Uh, and they don't like change at all. And so Chet comes in real ambitious. Yeah, I want to make all these changes. And he realizes really quick, ooh, everything's kind of like sacred here. I can't like touch anything. Like there's a, people are very adverse to change. But Chet decides he doesn't like the layout of the stage. And so he realizes, he notices that the piano is actually, it's kind of like in this cluttered area and there's like an organ and something else and something else and something else and something else. And he's like, well, I want to free up the stage. I want to create more room. So I don't want the piano on the right side of the stage. I'm going to move it. Hey guys, I'm going to move the piano. Oh no. <laughs> the people, they, they, the people just lose their mind. They're like, hey, no, you can't move the piano. We've always had the piano there. How dare you even think about moving the piano? We don't like change. Did we mention we don't like change? By the way, we don't like change. So Chet, being Chet, could either go, okay, I get it, or go ahead and move the piano. What do you think Chet did? Oh, Chet, <laughs> you lovable goofball. <laughs> and so he moves the piano from the right side of the stage to the left side of the stage. Hey, everyone, I did it. And that summer, when this particular denomination can like either like re-up their pastor or just like send them elsewhere, they're like, Bye, bye, Chet. And we're moving the piano right back. Years later, as the proverb goes, Chet hears there's a new pastor at this church. Let's call him Ron. I don't know. And uh, so Ron, he hears, is doing great. Church thriving. And so Chet has been able to salvage some friendships from this church, you know, in the shambles of Piano Gate 1993 or whenever the story happened. Miraculously, he salvages his relationships. And so he's in town visiting his friends and he wants to pop into the church. He walks into the church and you know what's the first thing he notices is? The piano is on the left side of the stage. And so, Ch so Chet's thinking like, what, what? 
And so after Ron's, the new pastor sermon, Chet approaches Ron. And Ron's like, hey, how's it going? Oh, yeah, Chet, I've heard of you. Oh, not good things, by the way. You made people real mad. And so Ch Chet goes, uh, how'd you do it? How'd you do it? What'd you do? Wait, how, why, why, how? Ron goes, what do you mean? What are you talking about? And he goes, the piano. How did you move the piano? They wouldn't let me. And Ron scoffs and goes, oh, <laughs> that. Well, all I did was move it just a little bit every single Sunday. A little bit. Someone noticed? No, no big deal. Till finally, I got to the left side of the stage. And he got away with it too. And it was subtle and slow and insidious. And that is the slippery slope of sin. That is the nature of sin. So let me give you um, a working out of this. And then I'll give you some help as, how we, as to how we can overcome this. So what I've seen with the slippery slope of sin that just gradual movement, I've, I've seen stuff like this. I've heard, uh, I'm so sorry. I've heard this story way more times than I care to. Uh, there's, say there's a man, who is, a man who is happily married to his wife and he notices a woman and finds her attractive. There's nothing wrong with finding someone attractive as long as it immediately stops exactly there. But then let's say this man kind of lingers in his look. And then this man starts to go, huh, I'm gonna kinda, I wonder what it would be like to be with her. Then he starts to kind of think about it. And then he starts to maybe kind of fantasize about like, oh, what if we were together? And then he starts thinking, man, I'd really like to meet her. And then maybe this man meets this woman and he gets like all the, the butterflies and the, you know, like all the, the feelings. By the way, that is not how I looked when I first met my wife. Otherwise, she probably would have run away terrified. Anyway, so he like, he feels all the butterflies when he first meets her. And um, maybe, maybe even there's like an ad on social media. Hey, let's follow each other on social media. And then there's comments, but like they're pretty like just banal, like, comments on like daily life and posts, but then maybe the conversation turns emotional. We're talking about some real life stuff. And then maybe this man starts to lament, oh, you know, my wife, this and that and the other. And then this woman starts to lament, oh, my husband, this, that and the other. And then the man goes, I can't believe your husband does that. And then the woman goes, I can't believe your wife does that. And then they decide, hey, we need to keep talking about this. And then maybe they even schedule a time to meet up together. And it's like, okay, no, 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 I need to be a good friend. You know, as a follower of Yeshua, we should be there for one another and be a comfort. No, I'm doing the right thing. And then there's maybe a situation where it's like, well, this probably isn't like the wisest choice, but like, it'll be fine, nothing will happen. And before they know it, boom, extramarital affair. And they could look up and go, what? How did I get here? Well, that's the slippery slope of sin. It is this insidious, slick road, this pernicious, pernicious road to death and destruction. And in this scenario, it, re it, it, it brings about destruction and it affects so many people, so many lives. Similarly, I've heard this with addictions. Let's just say... Um, Let's just say it's any kind of like alcohol. And if, and I would say as a disclaimer, if you feel a conviction from the Lord to never drink, then you go with that. However, if you feel freedom in Yeshua to have a beverage every so often, like a glass of wine with a meal, then, then that's fine. So I just want to make that quick disclaimer. Then you should go with that. Or if you feel like it's going to cause someone else to stumble, then don't. But if you feel that freedom, I can have a glass of wine every so often with a meal. If you feel that freedom, let's say it starts there. Okay, so person has a glass of wine with a meal every so often. Then that becomes like uh, a couple times a week. Not a big deal. It's fine. And then it becomes like, well, I only drink when I go out. But I go out every night. 
And then, and then it turns into like, man, you know, when I get a little tipsy, like I kind of have more fun. You know what? In fact, I kind of like me that way better. You know what? Actually, when I really kind of get a little more loose and like a little, whoa, like I'm actually a good time. I think people really like to be around me. You know what? Actually, I kind of don't want to go out unless I'm that in that stage. You know what? What if I actually like felt this way every day? And then, okay, I, there's a realization, maybe I am kind of drinking too much. Okay, but shh, 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 we give this to ourselves. And then maybe it gets to a point where like people are saying something and they get hyper defensive about it. And then all of a sudden they go, okay, I definitely have a problem. It's driving, I'm not driving anymore. And then boom, ends in addiction. And it's a slippery slope of sin. It moves just a little bit at a time. And so let me give you some help with avoiding this slippery slope of sin. And this first one's going to blow your mind. This first one is revolutionary. This is fresh stuff. I'm going to change preaching and just change the history of preaching with this. Ready? Read the scriptures. All right? Profound stuff. Read the scriptures. But here's why. This is an obvious thing, but it is a right and true thing. If we are not rooted in the scriptures, if we're not anchored in the scriptures, we will be moved by everything else. I've seen it. And if you're on that slippery slope, if you're anchored in scripture, you will not be able to go too far because you will feel that pull back. Once more, we have to allow the scriptures to shape and frame our worldview, the way we see the world and interpret the world. Otherwise, our worldview will be shaped by literally everything else, all of our other relationships and everything else we look at from our phones to our, screen, to our TVs to everything else. We, and if we are rooted in scripture, we will have greater clarity to see that destructive path of sin, that slippery slope of sin. And we'll be able to see with greater clarity, like, whoa, 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 I've gotten far. Whoa, 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 I gotta go back. Whoa, that was close. And if we are rooted in the scriptures, we will be on, this is how the scriptures talk about the scriptures. We will be on that path of righteousness, the, the, the right path. We were created to live following Yeshua. And I actually tell people with that, just real quick, um, I would never say like, well, if you, become, if you become a follower of Yeshua, life gets super easy. No, by no means. However, I know in my life, some things are easier when I am on that path because I don't have to second guess or think about it because I know from scripture what is good, right, and true, the path in which to walk. So to avoid the slippery slope of sin, anchor yourself in the scriptures. Here's the second one, ready? Pray. I know, I know, I know. Everyone's like, oh, wow, a preacher's telling me to read my Bible and pray. Woo, like hot, hot take. Let me press in a little bit. A lot of times, I, I, I'm aware, okay? A lot, a lot of times, I think when we pray, we do the whole like, dear Lord, and we got the whole wish list. This, 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 this. We good? Okay. Uh, that's just me. But... What I would encourage and implore all of you to do is just, as Yeshua said, pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So we ask that, but I would also encourage you to listen. Because prayer is not always just talking. And I can tell you from personal testimony that there have been times in my life where I just, I sought the Lord, I prayed, I asked, I listened, and the Lord made clear to me through prayer that, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm on the slippery slope in a particular area. I didn't even realize, whoo, we got to get back. So prayer, pray ardently, fervently, and in listening. Lastly, 
I encourage you to have community. Because in, pay attention to this, in community, there is accountability. People in your life can point out your blind spots. People in your life can be like, whoa, 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 Matt, don't step any further, don't step any further. Like, wait, what? Dude, look where you are. Oh, snap. Okay, I gotta go back. Sorry. Thank you. You need people to point out your blind spots. And so you need that community. Now, now that we've talked about the slippery slope of sin, we've talked about how to avoid sin by, by rooting in scripture, by praying, and by having this community that, that can point these things out to us, um, which by the way, also have fellow followers of Yeshua in this community and preferably some of those who are older than you that have gone ahead of you that can speak into where you're at on the path. Okay, quick sidebar. Now let's talk about the art of repentance. So what happens when we're on the slippery slope? Let's talk about the art of repentance. When we sin, I did not say if, I said when we sin, because we know that all sin and fall short of the glory. When we sin, it is good and right biblically to practice the art of repentance. And in Hebrew, the word in the Old Testament, in the, in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, the word for repentance is, or to repent is shuv. And here's what I love about that. Shuv has two meanings. It means to turn but it also means to return to the Lord. And so that's part of what repentance is. It is turning, whoa, I'm on the slippery slope, I'm on the path, I need to turn, but it's also a return, a going the opposite direction or running back to what is right and what is good. In the New Testament, there's this verb used, metanoia in Greek, and it actually means to change one's mind. So when someone is on the slippery slope of sin, what, what we are to do as followers of Yeshua is to, whoa, pump the brakes, and then we need to turn, change our mind, and return to the Lord. And what we have to do in those moments is we have to countenance our fallenness, that things aren't as they should be. And we, we will always tend towards Ra and towards sin. We just will. We need to confess our brokenness. Hey, I, I, mess, I messed up. Like, I, I don't have it all together. And then we need to, pay attention to this, commit to faithfulness, to faithfully follow Yeshua and to return. And here's the beauty of when we do this. In 1 John 1, 9, we read this. This is good. Write this down, earmark this in, in your text. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Because of what Yeshua has done on the cross by making atonement for us, he has taken our punishment. He has cleared our debts. He has demonstrated the Lord's love to us and provided an example for us to follow. And so as we accept that free gift of grace and we turn in repentance and return to the Lord, we stand forgiven and with the righteousness of Yeshua as it describes in the New Testament. That is part of the good news. And that, may I tell you, is unique to the way of Yeshua. In other religions and worldviews of the world, you can get too far gone. For instance, you can get to the end of this destructive path and you've done way too much that there's some angry, vengeful judge deity that has already said, nope, too late, too far, can't do it. 
You can, in some worldviews and religions, acquire, uh, accumulate too much bad karma and there's no coming back. And some other religions and worldviews, on these scales, you can do too much bad, not enough good, and yep, scales are already tipped. The, the, the verdict is in. That is not the way of Jesus. That is not scriptural truth. And quite frankly, that is not good news. In Yeshua, and because of the atonement of Yeshua, there is always a road back. There is always a return. And that is good news. And so as we wrap up here tonight, I cannot talk to you about the art of repentance without also talking to you about the Lord's kindness. Because it says in scriptures that it's the Lord's kindness that leads us to repentance. And I need you to know, it's imperative for me to know, that the Lord describes himself in, in, to a T precisely in Exodus 34, 6. And he says, I am the Lord, the Lord, the gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And the word there is chesed in Hebrew. And it can mean steadfast love or kindness. That is the central character and nature of the Lord. There is kindness when we come to the Lord in repentance. And so what I don't want this sermon about the slippery slope of sin to be is an anchor that weighs you down further into the depths of despair like King Shaul at the end of his life. What I want it to be rather is a buoy that pulls you up to the surface, to the light of the sun, into a new day. And you need to know on this Sabbath evening, this Shabbat evening, that nobody is ever too far gone that the Lord's hand is too short to save. That no one is ever too broken that the Lord cannot fix, mend, repair, renew, and restore. And that is good news. And so I want to walk off with, by talking to you about the art of kintsugi. Like you do. Everyone's like, wait, what? The who, what? Huh? So kintsugi and before we show any pictures, I can't see what's up there. Before we show any pictures of the actual pottery, it's this 500-year-old um, form of Japanese art. And in this, what happens is this masterful artist takes broken vessels, broken pots, plates, cups, and takes the broken pieces and then takes this tree sap and glues them together. Then he allows them to prove and to form and to solidify then this master artist, this creative, takes gold, either melted down gold leaf or gold paint, and paints in all the cracks. You can kind of show it up there. Paints in all the cracks to make something incredibly, profoundly beautiful. And this gold paint, here's what it does. It accentuates the imperfections, but it also helps bind up the brokenness. And it makes beauty from a broken thing. And so it is with the Lord when we turn to him in repentance, when we follow Yeshua, accepting his good gift of grace. I see time and time again, the Lord take the broken pieces of people's lives, the destruction we wrought with the ways we sin and we get on that slippery slope, takes broken pieces and through his love and kindness and, and the power of the Holy Spirit begins to, to mend people together as we begin to follow Yeshua. And then it proves over time and solidifies and we start becoming more transformed to the image and likeness of Yeshua as we faithfully follow him. And then because of what the, the Lord has done, because of his goodness and the, the grace of the gospel, we see that this, the gold of it the goal of what the Lord has done for us, what Yeshua has done through his atonement, it accentuates our imperfections, it binds up our brokenness, and it makes beauty from broken things and broken people. And that too is good news.
And so what I need you to know tonight is that the Lord is still in the business of restoring, redeeming, and renewing broken hearts and broken lives. And that the Lord still, just like with Kintsugi, makes beauty from broken vessels. Let us pray. Lord, thank you so much for this, for this Shabbat. We thank you that we get to gather together. Thank you for your, for your word that is a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. I pray for all of my brothers and sisters in, Mashi in Messiah. And I pray that if they're on that slippery slope, you would give them that, that conviction and that they would have that community around them to help support them and help them to turn and return to you and have that change of mind and change of life. And Yeshua, we thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for your atonement that makes all of this possible. May we walk in the joy and the freedom of that. And we thank you that you work through broken people and broken lives to bring about more of your tov and your good. And we pray this, B'Shem Yeshua, Amashiach. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message from Rabbi Kevin. Please like, subscribe, and share this link with a friend. We would be grateful to receive your tax-deductible gift to further the good news of Messiah Yeshua. To make a contribution, please click on the PayPal link in the description. Also, to view our regular services, click the link in the description for our YouTube channel. If you would like more information about Yeshua the Messiah, or how you can become part of our Bethlehem family, please visit our website at www.bethhalel.org. That's B-E-T-H-H-A-L-L-E-L.org. Or call 770-641-3000. If you are in the metro Atlanta area, please visit us for an Arab Shabbat service, Friday nights at 8 o'clock, or Shabbat services, Saturday mornings at 11. God bless and shalom. Nine, 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 nine.